Well, we, uh, we're in Nehemiah 3 tonight. How many have read Nehemiah 3? <laughs> you know, well, you know, everybody probably should put their hand up because you've read all the Bible before, right? You know you've read Nehemiah. So you've read Nehemiah. But now, the thing is, you know that I might ask you, well, can you tell me about Nehemiah 3? I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying this is a, a little bit unique compared to a lot of the other chapters in Nehemiah. And um, if you read it, you're probably wondering, well, how are we going to do this tonight? And you'll notice I have combined it with chapter 4, 3 and 4. A lot of names and a lot of gates. <laughs> we have sheep gates and horse gates and fish gates and water gates and, and all sorts of other gates too. <laughs> Nixon is in there. <laughs> but... Uh, First, uh, as we look at uh, at this uh, chapter 3, we have to think that God makes us as individuals. We are our own people in that sense, but we are interdependent individuals. Interdependent in that we, we depend upon God, but we also depend upon each other. And you think of unity that uh, is to be in the body of Christ. And when you think of unity, you have to think of the Trinity. And you think of the perfect unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Absolute perfect unity. And what we see here in chapter 3, and and we probably won't read through all the verses and such, that might be some good homework uh, later on, but uh, we see people really living out the image of the Trinity in that they're working together. And and before they uh, they weren't working together in unity and, and harmony and uh, so we look at uh, how Nehemiah has an account, an account here uh, of how there was a division of labor in rebuilding the wall and he uses different people the different gifts that they have and there's not really professionals here at this time even though you see. Uh, almost like government officials, and you see priests, Levites, gatekeepers, and goldsmiths, and merchants, and perfumers, and temple servants. But uh, it's just really average people coming together to do a great work uh, because it's God's purpose and, and it's plan. And so anyway, it's not an easy easy passage to teach out of. And just to give you some samples of what some people have done, there, there's been a well-known Bible teacher, really, really good, and he allegorizes the gates in the chapter, and he takes a spiritual meaning to each one, and that's how he did this. Well, that's all fine and well, but that's really not what this is about. It's, this is historical. This is ex- when he mentions these gates, the sheep gate and the fish gate. That's what he's talking about. I mean, these uh, really existed. They were for real. Um, but anyway, he uh, takes the sheep gate and he says, well, that refers to Christ and, and He's the Good Shepherd and that's where the Christian life must begin. And then he takes you to the fish gate and he says, well, that refers to Christ calling us to be fishers of men. <laughs> and then he gets to the old gate and he says, well, that we, re- we should reject all the modern newfangled ideas and get back to the old paths, <laughs> etc. <laughs> that's some of the ways that, that he did it. There was another really good author, and he launched off the verses that mention men working by their houses to deal with the importance of the Christian family. But that's really not what this chapter is about. <laughs> you know, I just... And then a third one, he mentioned the chapter in one sentence and he moved on to chapter 4. <laughs> so you can see it's rather difficult. It's not one of those regular, uh, you know, it's not a Romans 8, Romans 9, or, you know, verse by verse here. 
uh, not making fun of God's word at all. What I'm saying is, is everything in here is important in, in God's word, and, and this is an important chapter. I don't want to make light of it. You could ask, well, why did God include all of this stuff here in Nehemiah three in Scripture? What does He want us to learn from it here in the year 2016, as we said here in the uh, in the Bible study? Uh, but I think, for one thing, I think we can see the importance of people that are working together. There's probably a lot of other things we could sum up in here, but you have a lot of you have rubble all over this area. Um, some of it is is been repaired, or at least there are some uh, walls, and then there's gaps. Uh, it's not a large city, and it's it's probably about fourteen hundred to sixteen hundred yards from point to point of where they're going to be repairing these walls and building them up. Uh, so you can you can imagine all the shambles. Nehemiah had already set forth the need. The people had been challenged. You remember last week when we looked at that? And after he gave them a reason why, uh, look, God set this all up. Look, look, He gave me the papers to get here and, and, and uh, the horsemen and all the protection and, and the lumber and everything. And then the people said, let's do it. <laughs> let's go for it. And uh, so he, you know, he talked them into it because this is what God has done. And so he made believers out of him. He, he's a good leader. I think we can learn some really good leadership aspects from uh, him all the way through here. The people were willing to work, though. And so the strategy is going to involve the whole team there, all the people to uh, be working on doing this. Uh, just to summarize this chapter, the work is divided up into 14 work repair sections. There's 14 sections. There are 43 teams that are assigned to different sections, various sections all throughout here. Some teams are going to double up and uh, they'll do another section, which means a, a second one. As they finish their section, they're going to go up and do another one. And, and quite, the, quite the teamwork. They're, they're divided by occupation. They're divided by, by family, uh, region, as far as the community is concerned, and proximity and, and the city there. And then you have the government officials, uh, priests and Levites, you know, some of the people that, that were leaders, and then the rest of the people are just, you know, you're just your average people. And he gets them all to working to build this thing up. And it doesn't matter how high you are as far as the way that people see you or how low you are in the community, it doesn't make a bit of difference. They're building this wall. And they all do stuff that they wouldn't have ordinarily been doing. And, or maybe they're talented with these certain aspects, and, but yet they still have to go and do something that would not ordinarily be their trade. And uh, this is what Nehemiah does as he, as he does that. Uh, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we get into the, the first verse. Dearly Father, thank You for who You are and how great You are in putting together a work like this was done in Nehemiah's time. And you raised up a man, a man of God, who was committed to your purpose. And you were going to have it done, but yet it took people's efforts to be able to do it. As Nehemiah led in prayer, he also led in by his example, and uh, the people followed. And Lord, may we be a church that is always willing and ready, able to do the work that you assign us for and help us to be a, a team in this church as that what the church is in unity. 
in Jesus' name, amen. Um, right off the bat, in the first verse says, Elisha the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. So it starts off with that. If you have a study Bible, some of you may even have a map there of how the city's laid out and where the, the towers are at and the horse gates, the east gate, and sheep gate, fish gate, the old gate, broad wall, tower of the ovens. It goes on and on. That those are real places. You know, that God isn't doing anything spiritual here. You know, I mean, this is spiritual, but I mean, this is real. This is real work that they have a task to do. And so they, you know, they consecrate it and hung its doors, and they consecrated uh, the wall to the Tower of the Hundred, the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the sons of Emery built. So you have families; they're they're working together. You can imagine just the little kids out there even helping too. You know, this is a family, uh, community uh, thing that they're doing, and they're committed to it, and they're laying the beams and hanging the doors and bolts and bars. Uh, remember that he got uh, the wood from uh, what uh, the the forest that was given to them that they would be able to do this work to finish it. And so you know you kind of get the idea as you look through the verses. You'll see a lot of names. That's the people that uh, lived in and around Jerusalem at that time. Um, and and then you get all the places. There are there are names there that you would have trouble. Uh, maybe pronouncing <laughs> and you just kind of same underneath your lips as you move on to the next person but you'll see repair constantly as he repaired the refuse gate like in verse 14 and he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and they repaired the fountain gate and it's this is all just a shambles and you know taking the uh, the heaps that it was in and making it rise up and uh, it, it, you know, just trying to get the idea that oh, they just got things together and just started working and build it up. I mean, this is a pretty tough thing to do. Uh, it doesn't all happen at once, but um, I think they're so unified here, and how Nehemiah got them together and how they were able to do this. I think it's contagious. Once you get a few people doing something, then other people say, "Hey, we can do that." And you get them them do it, and other people are doing it, and you're looking all around this whole area, and you say, what a work has happened. We just did our little part here, and somebody else did their little part. Next thing you know, you've got a wall up, looking like a real place again. So they, they uh, assume the responsibility. Each one of them does, does their part. And nobody's seeking for the lamb, limelight, the attention, or the, the glory, or applause. Everyone gets their hands dirty, whether it be the priest or whether it be uh, the Levites, whoever, the gatekeepers, the temple servants. There's no star mentality here. They all are doing what needs to be done. I think that's uh, quite a thought. Of course, you know, you can think of the New Testament and uh, you think of what? Spiritual gifts. Romans 12, for instance. 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 4. Um, just the way that God has gifted everyone. Everybody's unique in that. We're, uh, what was it said? Um, we're spiritual snowflakes. We're all different, but we combine together to, to do that. So anyway, on, on your outline, it's, they had a common vision. They knew what they, they were to do. Um, then there has to be willing workers to do their part. They were there. We will do it. Let's do it now. (laughs) 
They weren't like that before until Nehemiah came there. Um, matter of fact, they cooperate, they coordinate this for an overall cause. And as one does their part and another does their part, they're actually complementing each other. They may not even necessarily be working side by side, but then when you see it all done, and that's how God works. That's how He works in the, in the church. It's a great picture of how the church works. Um, some of them have to work even outside their own area of strength. You know, they're they're good at one thing, but this thing they've not tried. But they're 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 doing some things there. Everyone's involved, and uh, of course, some do less glamorous jobs and less desirable jobs. It didn't matter. What happened? They made an advancement. They are really going along in chapter three. Whenever you have an advancement in the Lord's work, what do you think is going to be next? Opposition. <laughs> it happens every time. It'll always happen. That's this. You know, you don't have to look very far in uh, the Bible. You, you can look at oh, let's say. Um, Cain and Abel. There's Abel. Uh, he made a right sacrifice. Cain doesn't. Cain winds up killing Abel. Quite the opposition, I'm sure, that Abel had all along anyway from Cain. But there was a man of faith. You think of Hebrews 11, you know, and uh, the people of faith. You think of Noah. You know the opposition that he had? The only people that believed in what he was doing was his own family. The rest of the world was against him. It was Noah and his family against the world. And we know the results of that. Even think of Abraham. Uh, He received God's promise. And, uh, of course, during all that time, his wife is is barren. Uh, There's a famine that that he faces. He has conflict with whenever the kings all federate together. And, uh, of course, the deal with uh, rescuing Lot. You know, it goes on and on. Uh, wherever it seems like he makes a few steps forward, there's always a step back. The opposition is always there. And then you can look at David. Look at the opposition that he had, right? Uh, Joseph. All the Old Testament characters, of course, we know Christ. You know, We know the opposition he faced. Paul, did he face opposition? <laughs> All the time. Everywhere he went in the city as he preached the Gospel. How often did he get thrown in jail or whatever else came out of that? So it's nothing new, nothing new at all for whenever you are advancing the kingdom of God, it's almost guaranteed. Those who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So Nehemiah's story here is going to, I think, really impress upon us that there's eternal values that we stand for and they're worthwhile. But while they're worthwhile, there's opposition. We can accomplish significant things uh, for the Lord's kingdom, but we will also face strong opposition. Satan, he doesn't bother with half-hearted people. He doesn't, he doesn't really have to even take his time with them. Uh, they're content with a ho-hum spiritual existence. They don't care about anything advancing. They're just kind of on for the ride. But if you are on fire for Christ, there's a good uh, there's good reason for Satan to uh, see what's happening, and usually the adversary is going to give you quite the challenge. 
some people have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and Satan doesn't really have to worry too much about that. People can actually they can go to church, even pray, and even read their Bibles. And Satan doesn't necessarily mind, but the minute they wake up out of their spiritual lethargy that they're in, and they start shaking the world, then spiritual opposition happens. It will always happen. So he's rallying God's people to do uh, an advancement for the kingdom of God, which they did, and uh, there's the enemy right there. Uh, matter of fact, it's been said Satan doesn't doesn't mind when churches are they're singing and you know having a good time, and uh, there's nice little soothing sermons about how to use the Bible as personal success. You know that kind of thing, and um, those churches are really no threat to the domain of darkness. Not a threat to Satan. They can do all they want on there when they're doing that. But if you have a preaching of the gospel and there's conviction of people's sin, and there's the presence of a holy God that's amongst them and they're pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ, look out. It's going to be opposition. When uh, when a pastor calls the flock to be obedient and to live holy lives, look out. <laughs> the enemy can really start working there. And he will. There's a... In, in this particular place here, there's an enormous responsibility here to rebuild uh, the broken wall of Jerusalem. The Lord had directed them. Um, and, and, you know, when the Lord is directing us and we know we're doing what the Lord expects us to do, it's no guarantee that everything's going to go smooth and right. Well, it must be right and everything's going to go good because the Lord is blessing this one, Right? And we have no guarantee at all. Matter of fact, I think we probably have more of a guarantee of an opposition that will stifle that progress than we do anything else for it to go smoothly. It doesn't, doesn't usually work that way. You look through the New Testament and the book of Acts and then church history. Whenever people really stand for truth, always opposition. Then the Reformation happened. You think there was any, um, even though that was a revival, do you think that all went smooth? <laughs> Not at all. It was it was rough. It was tough. Um, so anyway, I think Nehemiah gives us a really good uh, analysis here of the opposition, and it, it shapes uh, kind of how we are to do things and, and to know what what can happen. Um, what are some of the enemies that Nehemiah is going to face? Well, they're individuals here. Sanballat. And take notice where they're coming from. Sanballat is to the north there. And things are going good for him because he doesn't want to restore Jerusalem because if he does, he's going to start messing his power base up. And, you know, if but yet if he launches some kind of an assault on them, he's going to be going against who? The king who gave them permission to rebuild. So he can't put all of them together and then take one big onslaught because you think, okay, that would be pretty easy to do. 
So that's not going to happen. The appointment by the Persian king uh, is definitely a, a protection in a sense. Um, you have Samaria there to the north. Um, then you have Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. And he is east of Jerusalem. He leads the coalition there. You have the Ashdodites, and they would be west of Jerusalem, and that's where the Philistines were at, and going towards the Mediterranean. And then to the south, guess who you have? You have the Arabs. Every direction. And they're all going to mount together. North, south, east, west. They're surrounded by the enemy. And God knows that. (laughs) The enemy will try to get you sidetracked to get your mind off of where you should be. It's God's will for the walls to be rebuilt, right? No doubt about this. This is God's purpose. This is a God-sent thing. This is how God works so often, though. He knows that, but He doesn't remove the opposition. They're on every side. And I think we can see that in our own lives. We have opposition the world, flesh, the devil, all around us, constantly. And it's God's will for us to keep on doing His will. So He doesn't remove the opposition. He could have. He said, well, if it's God's will for that to be built, why didn't He just get rid of all the enemies and let them do it? That would have been really easy. Even though it's God's will for us to grow strong in the faith, and to labor and to work in this advancing the kingdom, God does not remove the opposition. One day, when we're glorified, He will. (laughs) But here, He's not here to remove the opposition. It's just that we are to keep trusting in Him and do what He tells us to do. So if we respond properly, the opposition will drive us to greater dependence upon the Lord. Because when you see them get this done, that's really what it's all about anyway. There's no way in the world they could have done what they did with all that opposition. The enemies so mad and angry and they want to kill. And that's what we'll see in, in chapter 4. But if we yield to the opposition, then we'll wind up quitting the race, be discouraged, just settle in a mediocre Christian experience. Things go a lot easier when you're mediocre. And so, that is what's happening as they set this up and all the the gates, the, the inspection gate, the fountain gate, the pool of Shelah, the valley gate. They're all working. So that is my thought on chapter 3. And like I say, your homework is now, if you can go home tonight and read chapter 3, you'll probably get a fuller thought on that. Exactly, exactly. Right there yeah. in, right in the first verse, and then right in the very verse thirty-two. Mm-hmm. Any other insights we can use? First, matter of fact, I have a map here. You guys can't see it. I guess I need a PowerPoint, huh? But. The um, there's the fish gate. There's the sheep gate right here. Upper right. It's going to go around in here. 
Uh, you got one too? Yeah. Yeah, those are nice. And then, you know, tells, and they, they go all the way around. And that's quite a few hundred yards that they're covering there. But that was back in Nehemiah's day. And you can see that it wasn't really a, a big area, but it was big enough. So, now, it's interesting. Would you say that chapter 3, they've made an advancement? Bingo. Major advancement. Let's look at chapter 4. Where we took half. We didn't even really read too many verses. I feel kind of guilty about it. Uh, Chapter 4. Verse 1, Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, you ready for the next phrase? What is it? He was angry. He's furious. He's angry. Matter of fact, my version says he became furious and very angry. Very indignant. Enraged. Burning mad funny. All they're going to do is make this place look better and have a little defense, right? You've got to have walls. You have a city. You have to have a wall at that time. You're not, a, you're not going to be able to continue to exist. Burning mad. Really, really mad. And he wants to hold on to this area. And He has a trade route, by the way. I mean, he has great interest in this area and it's through this region and it's going to hurt his economy. And when you're talking money, that can make people what? Furious and really angry. <laughs> so there, there's... Pa- yeah, very passionate. The wrong way, right? So, he, he, you know, this is going to undermine you know, his people and their trade. So he has differences with the Ammonites. It's not like they're really the best buddies and everything. But isn't it amazing? It's like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were always at odds with each other. But it's funny, when Jesus came on the scene, it's like they became the best of friends. Even though they had differences, like for one thing about the resurrection. Pharisees believed in a resurrection, and Sadducees didn't believe in it. And then, you know, how much uh, of the Bible do you take literally, and how much really is inspired by God? And of course, the Sadducees just believed in the Pentateuch, the five books, and the rest of it was all trash and, and such. Well, he has all of these guys all around him, the Arabs to the south, Philistines to the west, the Ammonites to the east. He's angry, and they're all going to come together now. You know, Their lifestyle is going to be changed. And it's kind of funny when people's lifestyles are going to be changed because Christianity demands a certain kind of way of living, at least... That's what people think, and so therefore what you believe, they don't like, because that will change their lifestyle. So they got angry. Satan uses anger, doesn't he? He uses it to try to squelch joy and zeal and, uh, of, of new believers, or any believers for that matter. Uh, like, for instance, when somebody in a family gets saved and their mother and father maybe are not saved, and brothers and sisters are not, and it's like, how many times have you heard this? They get real upset because their child became saved. What's that? Yeah, right. 
So you know, and they can get angry because now this is upsetting the family and what it's about. So the family can really get mad. It's amazing what God's word can do to make people really mad, and they'll go all out other end to try to defeat that. So we see the furious uh, anger mocking the Jews. In verse 2 it says, He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what's, what's the first thing? that they're, There's going to be mockery. There's going to be sarcasm here. There's going to be ridicule. As a matter of fact, it's all within hearing distance of, of where the wall is at. And they're, they're asking these questions. And the first one is, it says, um, what are these feeble Jews doing? They're laughing at this and everything. And, and the guys are on the wall and everything. They're hearing this. And, and then there's another one. Are they going to restore it for themselves? Are they going to restore it? Do they think they're going to do that? This mess here? This is rhetorical questions. They're roaring with laughter. They're making fun of them. Ridiculing them. Can they offer sacrifices? You know, that's what the temple was all about. They're going to do that. Can they finish in a day? <laughs> Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Can they use that? Are they really going to do that? You've got to be kidding me. Right? And, and then you have Tobiah. Oh, he's really a joker. He's the Ammonite. He was near him and he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. <laughs> you can imagine, there's a fox, it all just falls down like a, like a little paper box. <laughs> so they're, they're laughing and making fun of it and they're angry, but they're mocking and the sarcasm is there. So there you have a setback. And have you noticed on your outlines there's a familiar pattern going on? Have you seen this? All throughout this chapter, Actually, in 3, we saw the advancement. But here we see a setback in, in verse 1. Verse 2 and 3. And you know, that can be discouraging to hear people. You know, they're making fun of you. Um, best thing to do is just let it roll off your backs because they don't know what God has in mind and what God's going to do. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to respond and play in their manner. Don't get offended by people's remarks. It's no use to get mad. Matter of fact, feel kind of sad for them. Well, right away, verse 4. <clears throat> Here's the advancement. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. We'll read verse 6. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. <laughs> so, it didn't get to them. But what's the first thing that they do? They turn right to God. Hear, O our God how we're despised. And it reminds me, uh, and, and Bob, I think, uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about in Psalms, there's the, the, the sections of Psalms that are called what? The, 
Yeah, I yeah, yeah, you had it. You had it. You had it last week. You, you said imprecatory, right? Yeah. Ah, right? Is that what that is? Yeah, there we go. I think you said it last time too. And, and all throughout the Psalms, you see that. And sometimes it, you know, it's like, okay, are we supposed to pray that kind of prayer? Because in Matthew five forty four, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount says some things exactly. It sounds like he's saying the opposite of what they're doing there and what David did in all the Psalms. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it's like, is there a problem here? What, what What's going on? Well, it's simply that they're calling for God to do what He had already promised. And that's to judge rebels. Judge them, God. As Christians, we are to pray that God would come in and do a work on those people and convert them, right? And in a way, it's like that He would destroy them being enemies by converting them. Uh, We start off with that. But if God chooses, He may not convert them. If He has not chosen them, He will not convert them, will He? And if He does that, then He will destroy them by the wrath of God, which is all His plan too. And that is a righteous God. A holy God. And, you know, if they don't repent of their rebellion, God has to judge them. And so this would be a righteous prayer in that they are against God and His plan. It's it's much bigger than them. This whole thing is about who God is and that He gets the glory as this wall is being built up. And it's nice that He's using them, but it's, it's all about Him. And so we want to guard our hearts against you know whatever may come against us and realize that despite the the, the personal motives and, and delights in seeing the enemies brought down, we still are hurt. We're, we're crying for them that they make fun of God, that they are disobedient, that they are rebels. And sometimes God takes those enemies brings them down to the lowest level and then converts them. That's a good thing. But He may not do that. Then what we say is, and in Revelation you see the saints doing the same thing as what's in the Psalms. They're praying that God would bring on judgment on them because that is a biblical prayer because God is going to do that. He has done it. He is doing it. He will do it. Yeah, it's about who he is. It's not about us. When we get offended because we're Christians, let that just bounce right off to God. It's like you should. There's a time to be angry. The anger should be because they've offended a holy God. They haven't offended me at all.
uh, how he's changed from Old Testament to New Testament. Mm-hmm. That Jesus has uh, done away with the the things of the Old Testament, and that's partly true. But if they don't understand the details. Um, so I was I was wondering this, and this is probably a further study that's required to fully grasp it. What's something that you can say that kind of shut that down? I mean, I said obviously, you know, Jesus is just as wrathful and, and angry with people as God is in the Old Testament. He's not that Jesus that everybody thinks. Right, and and well, I think right in the book of Acts. Well, first of all, we see that the biggest, I mean, the the, the major scene in in all the the history of mankind is the cross, and the wrath of God is seen there clearly by us who are Christians, and He had to judge sin, and it was put on Christ, and how could any and, and how could anybody ever do that to their own son? That's the same question they would ask. Well, God has changed. Well, he, you see this happen right in the New Testament. Uh-huh. And then as a result, we see, um, for instance, in, oh, in Acts 12, you get a guy who is uh, a mockery of Christianity. And I think he uh, it was Herod. And he killed James. Well, Herod winds up with a bunch of worms I believe right he he dies in, in a real short amount of time and God did that to him uh, that was a pretty despicable way um, but Ananias is a fire you know of, of in the church God you know keeping holy and, and, then, pushed. and then the idea that the God is only wrath This illustration, he's the bearded uh, grand grandfather of the cranky. And then you look at the Old Testament, and you see mercy written all throughout that. We see loving kindness, we see grace, we see love of God for His people all the way through there, and even the nation of Israel. How many times? Do you, you warn them, and and then he judges them by other nations who were wicked too, and and of course Israel had rebelled, and he did that with his own people, but yet at the same time, out of that discipline, what does he do? He brings them back together in their land. So they they think that he's all judgment and and an evil, wicked God in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. He's changed them now, and if he, if he changes, he's not God because that's one of the great attributes of God. He does not change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. <laughs> so they don't have a prayer, <laughs> and I mean that literally. Whenever they use that argument, because he is the same God, and of course we look in the New Testament, we look at Revelation, we're going to see that all of sin is going to be judged, and and we see everything is going to be made right. And so even there, he has to continue to... And we look through church history uh, and through mankind's history since the, the days of the church. And how he, you know, right. whether it be the, you know, the empires, like um, well, the Roman Empire and all happened with that. So, but he's been active in everything. 
and, and people don't like to see God active in everything. So they like to write that one out. So they like an open theism. I think you, you were talking about that the other day. A guy like the he, he came down, he's, he's saying that he doesn't really believe in God, but yet the God that I would have wouldn't be like that kind of God. And so he makes it up in the way that he would like God to be, in that everything would go just right for him. And then also it's based on things that he's learned from going to church. This is what they're teaching. That's, that's the way he sees God because of the teaching. Like he saw it that way. You know, God is all of those things and, and more, isn't he? He's, he's all of those. And he, you know, we see that just in this chapter of Nehemiah, you know, you say, well, God wouldn't give them opposition if he sent them there to do that. All he's going to do is have this done at the same time. They're going to be stronger after it's all said and done. By the way, you get into Nehemiah 8. Oh, what a revival they had as a result of this. They got into the Word of God and it was preached expositorily. I can't wait till chapter 8. <laughs> One of my favorites. And they heard the Word of God and then there was prayer, there was repentance, there was weeping. And then he said, turn that weeping into joy. And so they rejoiced. And, you know, and I mean, you see how God worked in all that. And, and yet he's judging the enemy by letting them take care of it, but yet he's interwoven it all the way through this. Yeah. Well, we see that there's advancement here uh, they put their mind to work. By the way, is prayer all we do in opposition? Well, no. We see verse 4, Hear, O God, right? Don't forgive their iniquity and everything, right? They've demoralized. And then it says, So we what? Went to work. <laughs> what did Cromwell say? Trust in God and keep your powder dry. Verse, verse 9. Uh, um, but we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against yeah. them day and night. There you go. Same pattern, isn't and, it? You know, it's like, it's not just praying, but you know, God says now, you know, yeah, yeah you know, it's like, keep the powder dry. So, your weapons loaded. That's exactly it. That applies to today. It's it's not a let go, let God. Hey, I prayed and I'm not going to do it. I'll just wait on Him. Well, that's true. We do wait on Him. But yet, He also has us to apply ourselves in in that too. And that is part of the waiting. But uh, He has us to do that. So... um, I would say quite a victory there in verse uh, 4 and 5 and 6. They had a mind to work and they did it. And then you get back into verse 7 and 8 and what do you have? A setback. <laughs> Here, here's the battle. right? It, it just seems to keep on going and going. The enemies sure not going to give up. So uh, Nehemiah's enemies, they have to be careful. They, they can't go attacking the city. They would so much love to do that. But Artaxerxes, who God is using in this too, to allow them to, to go there and Nehemiah and to do what they're doing and uh, to call at a time when he's the one that said, no more building. You're calling it off. 
Nehemiah comes around and he says, oh, go build. Uh, permission. So they just can't rally the troops and have an onslaught on Jerusalem and just wipe them all out. They'd love to do it because they, they have murder in their hearts. They, they want to kill. But they can't use those threats, that kind of violence. They do use threats. There is violence they have on mind. Verse 7, Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, they're always around, aren't they? The Ammonites, the Ashdodites, heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. What does that mean? <laughs> Again, it's furious. They're steaming. Well, they were probably intentionally spreading all this uh, word out there, you know, getting the word out to their kin and their <laughs> tribes and whatever, you know, to try to stir everything up. You know, <laughs> you know it. They, they're getting it together. So. If we can get together, they conspire against Jerusalem here like you're saying there, right, Bob? Small bands of terrorists can wreak a little bit of havoc, can't they? (laughs) You know where I'm getting at? We can pick off a few people at different times while they're working on the wall. And if Artaxerxes says anything, we'll just... uh, and, and. you can just see it, what they'd say. He'd probably say, okay, hey, listen, uh, what's going on there? You can't do that. And say, hey, we can't help it whenever some renegade bands get together and they go and we don't, I don't have control. I don't even know they're going to do that. I don't know who they are, right? That's, that's the way that they can operate. You know, the militant Muslims of our day and, and for the last few hundred years, have had the threat of terrorist activity. Can you imagine that? One or two here, a few dozen, maybe a few hundred here and there, puts on quite a psychological pressure. You know, this is old hat to them. They've always done it this way. This is even before Muhammad himself, right? It's uh, another thousand years. For he's going to come along, but it's the same thinking, terrorist activity. Uh, it says in verse 8, All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Somehow they got to do this. Well, that's another setback, isn't it? The wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. Verse 9 is the, uh, the, the advancement again. And Bob, you just brought that out while I got We prayed to our God. But we pray. That's that's always. You ever notice? What's the first thing they do when that happens? They go right into prayer. And then they go into action. And because of them, we set up a guard against them. They have to play defense. They're not going out attacking those guys, but they're, they're going to play defense. Set up a guard. Day and night. Always. Always being ready. Being alert. New Testament speaks of that spiritually to us because of the devil. Um, John Bunyan. You guys have one more Pilgrim's Progress left, don't you? John Bunyan. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. 
Do you catch that? I'm going to say that, and there's another part to it. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but, now you got that one, right? But, you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. <laughs> that makes, that almost sounds like Yogi Berra, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it almost does. <laughs> That's our guy, John Bunyan. Yeah. One of our favorite writers. Yeah. <laughs> always, always. Don't get in front of him by doing something without praying. God is sovereign. He's allowed it. Bernard uses the example of the church today is the, the, the horse has gotten in the cart. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one. I've heard that. The horse has gotten in the cart. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, 10 through 12, another setback. <laughs> this is the battle. It's just going on and on. They're still building the wall. They're still, they're still at it. Look at this. Here is the song of the day. This is, the big, this is probably the number one hit on the contemporary scene. <laughs> Thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. That's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them. Kill them and put a stop to the work. That's what the enemies are saying. They're singing this song. It's popular. It's a popular song. It's, it's a discouraging proverb. It's a discouraging song. It's a work song. That was circulating among the workers at this point. They're getting discouraged. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And they keep doing it, and they're they, they're having success, but they have some setbacks. And it's like, yeah, you know what? They're going they're going to come and kill us. We're going to be done. This is going to be it. They're enemies. We we can't do this. We're doomed. We're doomed. We don't have a chance. That in the world today, when you see as wicked as it is, and it's so often we can say we don't have a chance. Well, we have every reason for hope. We win. We win this thing. It may not look like it. I'm telling you, we are winning. We're trusting in Him. And uh, Anyway, there's a plot. Stop the work. Threats of violence. And you have negativism in verse 12. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us how many times... Ten times. Hey, you tell a lie big enough and loud enough and long enough and people will believe it. You ever heard that one? (laughs) They're going to come up against us from every place where we turn. You know who these guys are? They're Jews. But they're the Jews that are not building the wall. They're the Jews who live kind of out on the outskirts, actually probably live close to the enemy is where, where they're from. And they are negative to us. And it, this is significant. that They are not involved in the work of the wall. These are Jews that should have been helping them they're out too. They're in the balcony. Yeah. Whatever seems to be going with the flow at the time they're with, right? They're, they're the balcony... Observers. Observers. The back row. (laughs) No. Uh, no. Balcony crowd. 
Well, they weren't involved in personally in the work. They didn't know firsthand what God was doing in Jerusalem at all. They didn't. No, they didn't care. And they came repeatedly. And I think that's interesting. The Hebrew expression um, ten times over and over and over and over. They keep warning Nehemiah. Can you imagine trying to tell Nehemiah, you better stop that work on the wall. I bet you it made Nehemiah want to work all that much harder. <laughs> There's no evidence of it here, but it would have been neat if there would have been a few of them that would have been bringing them you know, food and uh, provisions and you know, supporting them and encouraging them and things like that. But it doesn't look like they're getting any of that. They're not doing that, are they? Yeah, at least they could have brought them food or something. Yeah. Just, you know, and like been, been sort of like, uh, what I want to say, cheerleading them on, you know, to, yeah, we want the, we want the, the walls restored and we want to be able to... Uh, yeah. Uh, we want a revival. Appreciate your guys' work there. We want a revival so? to our temple. You'd think they would have wanted that. Well, maybe they did, but probably they were disheartened and, you know, they had been for such, such amount of time, you know, things had been a certain way. And hmm. it's like, Oh my gosh, they're rocking the boat, you know, here. That's right. We've been getting along just fine. Everything's been okay here. Yeah, I mean, it may not be the way we really like it, but we just don't want to make waves. Ooh, boy, that can that can be quite popular. The neighbors out here with our uh, you know Arab friends and whatever. (laughs) The neighbors. That's boy. This is so. so up to date here. Really. So they must have been used to being kind of defeated, sort of having, you know, a lot of them. Yeah, they had them around all the time, didn't they? Yeah. So, right. not going to do it. We can't do anything of these guys. Remember the guys who said, "There are giants in the land." Oh yeah. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. Right. <laughs> here we go again, right? Well. Setbacks after setbacks, but here's the advancement. From the rest of the chapter on, you get quite an advancement. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. I love this. Do not... Be afraid of them. What does he say? Remember the Lord. Here we go. Here's praise. Who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. You fight for your family. Because we're on God's side and He's great and He's awesome. So He stations them with swords and spears and bows Nehemiah has prayed just constantly. He's praying all the time. And that didn't make the enemy go away. We can pray, Lord, cast the enemy out of here. And who knows, he might have even said that. But that's not what God is going to do here. Instead, the enemy ups the threats to attack. And yet, they're being obedient. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Prayer isn't a magic cure-all. We think, well, if we pray the right prayer and we say it with faith and we really believe in our faith, our faith in our faith, then it'll always come true and it'll be nice and gentle and everything will go good and smooth. 
no, prayer doesn't mean that will happen. Um, it doesn't mean that you, you can ignore the enemy's threats too or pretend that they don't exist. It means get your guard up. Or in Ephesians 6 it says what? Stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Uh, he puts in a warning system here and quickly rallies them to defend their families and the city. And he says, be vigilant. And then he gives them a call to remember the Lord. And I think that is the most powerful statement that's made right there. He's great. He's awesome. That's what this is all about. People were discouraged. Remember back in in verse uh, 10 and 11 and 12? And then he says, hey, God is awesome. (laughs) We should be full of awe. They'd gotten their focus where? Off the Lord. Off the Lord and on what the enemy was doing. On to what the situation is. Oh, it looks terrible. The rubble and all the work that is left to do. You know, they had already been working and there was an accomplishment, but they, they don't see that. They still see all the junk and everything that's around there. And then they see the enemies. And Nehemiah, the great leader that he is, directs them right back to this great God that we have. Remember Him. How great He is. Remember how He brought me here and and look what He's done already. Remember what He's done through Israel's history. (laughs) He's awesome. You know, if if we yield to the enemy, then look what's going to happen to our families. So when opposition hits, it's awful easy to get our focus off, off the Lord. We can get our eyes off real easy onto the problems. Problems are there all the time. That's what we we're problem solvers, because <laughs> we're going to have problems all the time. Believer or unbeliever, we're going to have problems. Always having to fix things. Well, what caused all things to break? Sin. <laughs> Paul says this in Colossians three two. Remember this verse, and we're we're ready to close this out. I think this is a great one to kind of be finishing with here. Colossians three. Therefore, verse 1, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Here's your verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. All that stuff that's around you, don't set your mind on that. Be aware that's there. Don't ignore it. But the fact of the matter is, remember where who your God is and remember where you're heading. Remember where you sit right now. You sit in that's that's present tense. You have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Keep seeking Him. Fight for your families. God is frustrating the enemy's plan anyway. And it reminds me of C.H. Spurgeon, who had uh, a paper uh, that. Always came out as called the sword and the trowel. Now I have to. Did, did he base this off of Nehemiah here? <laughs> sword and the trowel, they're both necessary. Uh, the, the trowel is for your work, and and then the other hand, the sword here for for the defense. It's hard enough to do the work just just with the trowel, or it's hard enough to do it with the sword. Some people, you know, they're going to have to they're going to have to defend and at the same time build. So the reason for the sword is so that we can use the trowel 
we don't use the sword, we can't use the trowel because they're going to blow us away. So we defend the faith with the sword of the Word of God. There's your sword. There's my sword. The Word of God. That's our defense. So that we can build His kingdom right now. Build His kingdom with the trowel. The sword and the trowel. You have your defense. I know Miklos has been, Nandor have been dealing with uh, some pretty worldly people. Some of them professing to be Christians, some professing to be atheists, some don't even know what they are. They have their own um, um, spirituality, humanism, their own thoughts. And at the same time, your defense is the Word of God. Don't forget that because that's really where the truth comes from. If they want to reject that, then they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God's holy Word. And if they don't take that as truth, and they see themselves uh, as subjective truth, they're out there hanging, as uh, Jonathan Edwards said, as it's like they're, they're just hanging. You know, just for the, the, the hellfire flames are burning up, and there's nothing to trust in. And they're going to fall. They have to see the objective truth. If you know Christ and you try to accomplish anything for Him, you are going to experience what? Opposition. Respond like Nehemiah did. Here it is. He did it with prayer. He kept on with the work. He was very vigilant with it against the enemy. And keep your focus and this is the first thing anyway, but it goes back to the prayer. Keep your focus on the great and awesome God whom we serve. That's living by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your truth. Thank You for this story in Nehemiah because we know we have to fight. Sometimes we're not aware of that. Sometimes we sleep. Sometimes we forget that the enemy wants us to sleep. Or we can just not pay attention to what God is doing. That Lord, help us keep our focus on You always and yet still continue about our work even though it would be a lot easier just to kind of back off and just kind of lay back. And Lord, You want us to be diligent and to be working in this kingdom, building up the wall, building up the kingdom. For we are on the winning side. And Lord, help us to realize that always, regardless of what's going on around us in the world, we can get so off doing what is right, but yet losing our focus. Thank you for the everybody tonight as we've been able to come together and just uh, look at your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.